Welcome to episode 13 of The History Files. We're recording this on May 12th, 2015, and I'm Gordon Fry. For our news segment today, I want to mention the fact that last Saturday, May 9th, was the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe, or VE Day. Uh, it was barely noticed in the West, but the Russians, as they are wont to, uh, took great pride in the fact that they managed to overwhelm Nazi Germany mm, with help from us, but eh, not as much as they certainly would have liked. I thought it very sad on our part that we took no notice of this. We sent no representatives to the uh, Russian celebration of this, or commemoration, I should say. However, China certainly did. Their premier was uh, was there sharing the uh, sharing the dais with uh, with Mr. Putin and uh, representatives from <laughs> India, Cuba. Egypt and Mongolia and a host of other places uh, certainly were were not amiss in in being there. Um, it was a really really phenomenal parade. They did it in an hour, which is outrageous. How does anybody do that? And they had several thousand troops with again representatives from China, from Egypt, and India. And of course, India during World War II was a Commonwealth country. So the West was sort of represented, <laughs> represented, but by India, which is kind of an interesting take. Uh, I did think it interesting, too, that Mr. Putin in his speech, and I don't know Russian, but I could tell that he was giving uh, appreciation for all the countries who were allied together in World War II to defeat both Japan and especially Nazi Germany. And he did, of course, mention Great Britain, France, and the United States, even though we were being kind of snotty and uh, not participating in this. Um, <clears throat> the Russians take enormous pride in their defeat of Nazi Germany, as well they should, because they lost something like 27 million people in this episode. Uh, the West, well, the United States, what, we lost a hundred and some odd thousand troops and virtually no civilians, uh, other than Merchant Marine, which, you know, they're not exactly a civilian. They put themselves in harm's way. At any rate, I don't want to denigrate the loss. And the tr is a tragedy that so many Americans lost their lives in this. But it's nothing compared to 27 million Russians. And they have every right to take great pride in this. Joseph Stalin probably put it best, and Joseph Stalin may have done a lot of bad things, but he also was a brilliant man, and he said, World War II was won with American dollars and Russian soldiers. He was absolutely right. 
This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For our media section, I want to make mention of Ken Burns' documentary on baseball. It's, well, it's 20 years old now. He did it in 1994. Uh, but it's really, really good. Uh, we haven't gotten terribly far into it, but what he's what we've seen so far is is excellent. Um, I always knew that, I knew that Ebner Doubleday actually hadn't invented it, but I didn't know who had. And anyway, it was it's a very, very interesting and uh, captivating story. Yeah, I and so I'm I'm speaking for the non-sports enthusiasts in the audience because I'm pretty indifferent when it comes to organized sports like that. I I I'm like Gordon here. If it doesn't involve guns or horses, it's just a kids game. And the thing is, they're pretty upfront about it in this documentary the fact that baseball is a kids game. Still, it is America's pastime legitimately so. They they pretty much invented it whole cloth while you you can draw some some origin to the child's game of rounders and maybe a little bit of cricket, but really it's, it's a pretty unique and, and, and in the first episode that we watched, they do talk about how some of the early promoters of baseball tried to take it around the world and, and get it, see if they could interest other countries in, in the baseball fever. And no, it wasn't happening, at least not in the 19th century. Nobody was interested. So definitely it started out as an Americans only kind of thing. A really, really interesting glimpse into the, the temperament of the time and, and a real window on the on those early days. Uh, yeah, I'm waiting to find out when Japan was introduced to the game. That ought to be very interesting. And um, I also want to find out when people started eating salted peanuts. <laughs> yeah, because that just, well, I like peanuts. So I want to find out when that became a major part of baseball. We also want to give a shout out to another one of our Psycon family of podcasts, and that's Coffee with Jeff. We're quite enjoying that. Uh, it's uh, it's he depicts uh, usually a historical topic, something that happened in the past, and he just waxes eloquent about that for a good half hour or so, um, and stays right on topic. and And he's finding some really interesting things to talk about. Everything from the Amityville horror to things farther back in the past. I I really enjoyed listening the other day to his podcast on uh, the West Point riot of uh, the eggnog riot, pardon me, of 1826, uh, where in a bunch of students, pardon me, cadets at the military academy at West Point had a riot because of eggnog and overindulgence in certain additions to eggnog. Uh, it was very interesting. And certain cadets who we seem to think of, at least as a historian, I think of as not having been, in, would have indulged in such things, mm, well, did. Yeah, like Jefferson Davis. <laughs> and and who was the other guy that he... Oh, uh, Ethan Allen Hitchcock was one of the officers involved. He was a general in the Mexican-American War. Jefferson Davis, of course, ended up being the president of the Confederacy, but he was also involved in the Mexican War as well, uh, and we'll definitely need to do a podcast about that at some point. Uh, but anyway, just wanted to do a shout-out, and definitely enjoyed Coffee with Jeff. History lives again. For our main topic today, 
We're interviewing my very good friend, Dr. Morgan Blanchard. Uh, Morgan and I have known each other for, I don't know, upwards of 30 years now, and done a lot of really crazy, strange, wonderful things, like riding the range in Colorado, and, um, well, things of that nature. The, uh, the circumstances of this interview were rather interesting. We cornered him during a layover when he was flying from Santa Fe, actually Albuquerque Airport, to his home in Anchorage, Alaska. And so we cornered him and did the interview in the car. So if it sounds like there's an airplane going ahead, going overhead, well, there's probably an airplane going overhead. Uh, the sound quality isn't great, but I think the discussion is well, well worth it. Dr. Blanchard is uh, an archaeologist, Primarily, he does, or at least prefers, historical archaeology, but um, he's really good at, at all that sort of thing. He's an excellent historian, by the way, in his own right, and he's married with children these days, married to an, also to an archaeologist, and it was really, really good seeing Morgan. So I, I really hope that you people will enjoy the interview, because I had a marvelous time doing it. Uh, we're recording this on May 10th, 2015, and my special guest today is Morgan Blanchard, a very good friend of mine who is an archaeologist in Anchorage, Alaska these days, and he just is on the return trip from Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he worked on um, a, I guess it was a class you took on using metal detectors for actual real archaeology. Right. Yeah, it was a course put on by the National Park Service. Uh, uh, one of their national training uh, groups put this together. Um, metal detecting is a technology that's that's generally been um, used by avocational people, um, and frankly, the archaeologists for years kind of referred to it as the devil's wand, um, because frankly, a lot of people use it to loot, and um, that's very problematic for archaeologists. But at the same time, uh, metal detecting does um, allow certain uh, approaches that are very useful for archaeologists and, and there are certain situations when it's really the best tool to use when you're trying to understand certain kinds of ephemeral or complex uh, archaeological sites, battlefields uh, being one of them. Now, you mentioned that you were doing this class at the Glorietta battlefield site. Yeah, it was. it's actually the, the test area that we were looking at was um, uh, an area where the Federals moved after the battle um, and they established a hospital at a ranch right next to the uh, old Santa Fe Trail, and uh, the uh, then established a camp across the the road or what was a current road um, where uh, the Federals camped for several weeks after the battle. Okay, just to clarify things, this was the Battle of Glorietta Pass in 1862, mm -hmm. uh, not the furthest west battle of the. American Civil War, but certainly one of the furthest west. Yeah, it's sometimes referred to as um, the Gettysburg of the West, um, and not anywhere yeah. near about size, but being sort of a high water mark for for the uh, Confederate attempts to invade um, into New Mexico, Colorado, and then in some senses there were some dreams that they might be able to go all the way to California, but we, we could talk about yeah. that. That was a pipe dream, Unlikely, really. Unlikely, yes. Yeah. Uh, as I recall, it was... Um, Henry Hopkins Sibley, yes, yes, who led the, the Confederate forces, right? Uh, um, uh, the best known for inventing the Sibley stove and Sibley tent, but um, 
uh, he unfortunately was a pretty good alcoholic, um, <laughs> and, and the, it was not a very effective leader, and, and um, uh, by all accounts missed pretty much every major conflict or actual battle involved in the invasion uh, due to certain health reasons or possibly just being drunk. But he was a West Pointer, so... He was, he was, yeah. He, he, uh, uh, he was, had a heck of a chin. <laughs> <laughs> well, if... if, if uh, if that's a, a recommendation, I'm sure he did well. But there have been claims that he is one of the worst generals that the Confederates ever put into the field. But the the invasion was um, was um, a difficult one in New Mexico because it's kind of a hungry country. There's not a lot of um, support there, and and Sibley undertook the expedition with the understanding that he'd be able to feed himself off the land, and that was a, a pretty tough proposition in New Mexico. So, Sort of a bad idea. Yeah, not a great plan. And as I recall, it was the Colorado volunteers who stopped him cold there. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, 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 unfortunately I'm not a, a great um, uh, historian for, for, that, um, for those battles, but yeah, Colorado volunteers did come down. Um, they had a series of fights um, um, culminating in the in the Battle of Gloria Pass, the the biggest one, and and it was kind of a three three uh, sided battle. There were Federals, there were Confederates, there were Apaches. There were Apaches. <laughs> um, it was a, it was a tough area to to fight. There wasn't that many uh, people involved, but um, it did uh, pretty much stop that dream of um, of going into Colorado. And, and Sibley, like I said, had a kind of a a thought that he might be able to get into the gold fields and things and, and provide right. some material support for the Confederacy and, and then that ended. So um, the area we were looking at, um, like I said, was uh, one of the areas where the where the Federals established a hospital after the fight um, and camped for a little while and uh, the site that we were looking at had been uh, surveyed um, previously um, um, the, the site that we were looking at had been previously surveyed um, and had uh, uh, they had located a um, uh, Artifacts that were uh, contemporary to the to the hospital era after the battle, um, but it's right along the uh, it's right along the uh, uh, Santa Fe Trail. So um, they also found things associated with the trail activity. They found things hmm. associated with later activities. Um, uh, there was a Boy Scout camp on on the site at one point. But now, didn't you say one of the things that they found while you were there was a, like a fifty seventy? Yeah, they sure did. A, a, a Benet primed, internally primed uh, U.S. Army uh, uh, U.S. Army round built for the military at uh, one of the arsenals. Um, it was complete, um, and that would have represented you know post war activity along the trail. Right, uh, some at some Fort point Union after eighteen sixty six. Correct. Yeah, yeah, probably up till. I think that terminal period really would have been around 73, 74 that okay. they would have been issuing those. But it's difficult because um, they also, that was a popular round that was sold uh, to people that were moving west um, mm-hmm. as the the 66 and 68 Springfields became obsolete once the 73 Springfields really in 4570 took over for the military as those went out the military was selling those guns and that ammunition to civilians who were moving along the Santa Fe Trail among others right. so it's, it's, it's a difficult round to place to a certain kind of activity um, other than we know it was post 1866 right exactly that's the best piece so of information post- that it was post 1866 and post war so um, it was an interesting site to work at. We we were uh, primarily there doing work to figure out um, to get experience working with metal detectors and different kinds of metal detectors and the technology that's involved. And uh, again, this was you know under the auspices of the Park Service. It was on Park Service land. Park Service rangers, Park Service archaeologists were there working on that site. So um, it was very controlled. I, I don't really encourage people to take their metal detectors out <laughs> and look yeah. for things. So. 
So now, didn't you mention that the fellow who was running this was the fellow who did the big archaeological dig at um, Little Bighorn? Yeah, Doug Scott. Doug Scott's really one of the guys that turned metal detecting into a sort of um, well understood and demonst- demonstrably valuable tool for archaeologists and anybody who who has an interest in in uh, understanding a little bit more of that um, or understanding. Uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn really needs to read um, Doug Scott's book, The Archaeology of the Battle of Little Bighorn, where they were. Um, well, what happened was they had a big fire in the '80s that burned off all the all the cover at uh, the Little Bighorn, and so they went out and metal detected and and um, uh, were very, very, very studious about it. They were. Um, when they were finding bullets, they were um, fired bullets. They were getting the angles at which they were laying in the ground, and they were using that to f- to develop reverse trajectories to try to figure out where people were shooting from and towards. And they were able to tie in uh, by examining uh, the cases in particular, not the bullets so much, because the bullets uh, uh, degrade in the ground, and you can't uh. you lose the detail that's required to figure out ex- that it's from a specific firearm. But um, they had better luck with cartridge cases and looking at extractor and, and firing pin marks and were able to track specific guns across the battlefield. And the big take-home from that experience was that um, when they examined what they found archaeologically on the field, um, it tailored very well with some of the accounts given by surviving Native American survivors of the battle who said, this is what happened, and right. they weren't believed. Right. There were so many contradictory stories. Right after the battle, most Indians didn't want to have anything to do with it. I wasn't there. I didn't do anything. I, I, I was in Switzerland I was making in Switzerland. Exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. And nobody wanted to do that. But, but as time went by, those stories started to become told and they were recorded. But the problem was is that the stories... They had contradictory stories. Things people had said, Indians, Native Americans had said at the time or shortly after the battle didn't jive with what was being told in the 20s and 30s. Um, And so by taking the archaeology, they could look at accounts of Native Americans, and and they were actually able to put together some very good information and say, this is likely what happened. Um, It was a a remarkable piece of work, and as I said, anybody who has an interest in understanding the Battle of Little Bighorn really needs to look at that, because it's one of the few pieces of hard information that's available. Oh, it's phenomenal. Uh, Just as a pointer for people in the audience, it's uh, Battle of the Little Bighorn, of course, also known as Custer's Massacre, Custer's Defeat, Custer's Last Stand. Uh, which was in June of 1876. So just so we can place that in, in time. time yeah. uh, <clears throat> now you also mentioned another uh, incident uh, that you had dealt with, or at least talked about in this class, uh, and that's the Taos Revolt of 1846, when after the Americans had taken over New Mexico in the, in the Mexican-American War, um, New Mexico surrendered without firing a shot uh, due to some some really remarkable uh, uh, what you call international diplomacy by merchants of the Santa Fe Trail, but due to various cultural uh, problems issues, uh, the Pueblo of Taos revolted against the Americans, and um, anyway, it was a um, it was a fairly big affair at least as far as New Mexico was concerned. But uh, what was it that you said that uh, the discussion was over? Uh, well, we were. it was mentioned that, that this is one of the few instances when Native Americans were successful in sort of driving out um, uh, European 
control for some period of time. It didn't work out very well for the oh, folks in Taos. But so you're talking about the Popeyes Rebellion, yeah, 1690. Yeah, 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 I'm sorry, it was okay. the early revolt. Exactly. Okay, the 1680s. Yeah, right, and they drove they, they drove Europeans out for a while, and then eventually the Europeans came back. And right, and the discussion later, was, yeah. yeah, the discussion was, and weirdly enough, came back and they they sort of got welcomed with open arms. It was it was not a, it was kind of a weird event, but mm-hmm. but we were talking about that and and it made me think about um, actually the Clinket revolt. In, in Alaska in 1802, where uh, the Clinket um, were actually successful, they, they they drove off. They attacked every single Russian post in the state of Alaska on the same day, and uh, were able to sort of drive the Russians out for a period of time. And and, and uh, that's kind of remarkable. Most people don't under, know much about uh, about Alaskan history and, and uh, Russian history um, in Alaska. So. It <clears throat> something that's very poorly known in the United States. Yeah, in fact, yeah. I think the world. Uh, but to be able to, for a quote primitive savage group yeah. to end, end quote, to organize on the same day, same calendar day, throughout what a thousand mile yeah. archipelago. Yeah, and, and you know the the uh, one should never think of the Clinket as primitive. <laughs> right, exactly. these are some of the most complex societies. They're they're uh, sedentary hunter gatherer groups with highly developed material cultures. They had slavery. They were. Uh, active warfare, very serious clan groups. Um, In fact, they did have metallurgy. They had a lot of copper. Oh yeah, big copper. Uh, they very extensive trade networks. Um, these were incredible groups and still are. Uh, the Clinket have a history of re- resistance in Alaska that's remarkable, um, even up to the point where when the United States purchased Alaska, um, the Clinket promptly filed suit in, in federal court claiming that the Russians, that was all fine and dandy, but the Russians didn't own the land, so how could they sell it? And they were instrumental in, in starting the native groups in Alaska that continue to this day, um, the Alaska Native Brotherhood and some others that are very, very important in, in Alaskan uh, Native culture and preserving Alaskan Native culture. And uh, yeah, the Clinket uh, were remarkable. They, they attacked Sitka in 1802 and drove everybody out. And it was a couple of years later the Russians came back and attacked them. And actually, there's a tie in to this class that I was taking in that uh, uh, Doug Scott had done some uh, archaeological work, uh, metal detecting, and uh, um, um, Magnetic resistance. There's a, a, a test where you can use a to 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 measure the magnetic resistance of the soil, and you can see things underground, buried mm-hmm. things, uh, walls, things like that. Oh. It's interpreted right. And uh, when they they did that at a fort in Sitka that was built by the Clinket, and the Russians attacked that in 1804. And so when they when they did some work there, they were actually able to find cannonballs and things like that from that fight. Oh wow! Yeah, the um, of course in a closer to, closer to my home. The Plinket had a. Uh, they actually attacked the local Sklalem tribal uh, village in uh, uh, Port Gamble, near very close. Well, I live on Gamble Bay, and this is very close there, uh, to the point where a neighbor of mine, an older friend, a gentleman named Ted George, his brother found a cannonball from this a few hundred yards away from where my house is. But um, in 1856, the Plinkets came down as part of the Greater Yakima War, hoping to pick up some yeah, some of the easy pickings they thought might be there, and instead ran into the warship, the United USS Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which fired upon them, convinced them to surrender, and then drug them off into, and dropped them off in the middle of the Straits of Juan de Fuca. Uh, the Tlinkets were not happy with this, and they came back the next year and murdered and beheaded uh, the U.S. Customs agent on Whidbey Island, a fellow by the name of Eby. 
they are not people to annoy. No, the the, the Clinket are uh, uh, quite an amazing culture, um, uh, material culture-wise, but also you know very warlike, very very. Uh, they were the masters of their environment, as far as they were concerned, and they were they were. Uh, uh, you know, very, very strong warriors. They they had slavery, among other things. They practiced big pot latches and, and those sorts of things. So, um, uh, very, very complex culture. And, I, and anybody who's interested in Northwest Coastal Indians, the, the Clinket and the Haida are, are two groups to really look at. Uh, you mentioned a hammer. Oh yeah, the the there's a there's a hammer, and I and I I'm, apologize. I'm a little tired at the moment, and I've forgotten the the chief's name. But the the fellow who was um, in charge at Sitka, the native leader, uh, the war leader at the time, uh, uh, during the battle in 1804, used this used a hammer um, was his weapon. And there's uh, it's a very well known. He's a very well known individual, and this hammer is a well known object. And uh, there are some of his pieces of armor, and I believe the hammer exists in a museum someplace. Now, he's um, it's a remarkable culture, it really is, and there's a great history to, to that. You know, that's important to Alaska, but but also to the rest of the world, I think. Well, fantastic stuff. So, what else have you been up to lately? Oh, I'm working on various projects. I think the most interesting one is um, I'm working on the northernmost Japanese internment camp from World War II, where they interned the federal government, uh, the Department of Justice, interned um, foreign nationals in Anchorage, Alaska, and nobody's knows very much about that. So we found the site and we're going to be trying to identify um, certain features of it this summer archaeologically. Now that, that's something that very few people know about. They, a lot of people have heard of the internment of the Japanese Americans during World War II in the United States proper, but not in Canada and in Alaska. Yeah, and, and strangely enough, also South America. Oh, um, they oh, were right. actually deter, uh, detaining people in, in South America, in certain South American can, countries, and bringing them back. And okay, uh, it, it's it's a remarkable story. I grew up in California and, and thought I knew that story, you know, because you hear it as a child, you learn about it in school. I had teachers that had been in Manzanar and things like that, and so I thought I, I I had a grasp on what that story was. But as I as I read more and more about it, I, I found out that it's uh, a much more complex story. That there are several different kinds of camps. Some of them are run by the WRA, the War Relocation Administration, some of them are actually run by the Department of Justice uh, on, on army bases. And so um, some uh, Japanese, they're not citizens because uh, the law prevented them from becoming citizens, but um, long-term residents in the United States, Japanese long-term residents, were deemed to be dangerous and uh, were actually held under the conditions and treated as prisoners of war, um, which is remarkable that they were wearing, in some cases, there were reports that they were wearing forms of POW painted on the back. Oh, really? And I've seen letters that, are, that were provided to them that were on... Uh, envelopes and letterhead that says prisoner of war and they would write cross out prisoner of war and write internee of war on top of it Um, and so the the, the conditions varied quite a bit and some of these guys uh, spent the entire war much of the war in uh, in uh, military camps in New Mexico uh, Julesburg or uh, I think it's Julesburg uh, was one of the big ones but uh, um, but these were by definition almost the 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 older more um, prominent leaders within the Japanese community, at least in Alaska. Now, didn't you say a, a founder of modern Alaska? Well, some of these guys were, were um, very important people. Uh, uh, I, there's a couple of them. The difficulty we're having is that we don't have a list of all the people that went there. So we're, we're tracking them down through 
different historical approaches, but uh, I was think telling you about a fellow by the name of Frank Yasuda, who was right. a um, uh, came to Alaska in the 1890s as a, was a trader up in Barrow with uh, Charlie Brower, a very famous fellow in Charlie Brower, and uh, in Barrow in Alaskan history. Um, and then he eventually went on and founded the town of Beaver, uh, Alaska, and uh, was an important trader. Um, was in his 60s when uh, when he was interned. Um, had married into the native community in Barrow and moved his whole family. He's actually kind of known as the Moses of Alaska because there was a uh, depression and whaling along the north coast, and so the economy went down pretty badly for a few years. And so he moved his whole family, walked them into the interior and founded the town of Beaver, hundreds of miles to the south. And uh, super important guys. These are guys that are big leaders in their communities, um, business leaders. And uh, when the war started, um, simply because they were Japanese and that they weren't citizens, they were placed on a list by the FBI as of people who were dangerous and uh, potential leaders of Japanese resistance, which was ridiculous if you know anything about these guys. Um, and they were arrested and, det- and detained as uh, prisoners of war. So... Quite a quite a strange circumstance. You said the marshal who arrested. Oh yeah, when when uh, the the federal marshal in Fairbanks came to arrest uh, Frankie Suda, he actually apologized for having to do it. And uh, yeah, so uh, these were there weren't many Japanese people in Alaska. Only a couple hundred, two hundred and forty, I think, and uh, somewhere around there. And they they there just weren't there weren't big concentrations. There weren't Japanese towns or things like that. There right. were a few individuals living in villages or. Uh, in coastal communities, because Japanese, some Japanese people work for canneries and things, and so they were well known. They were they were people everybody went to school with. They knew who these people were. They were not uh, they were not strangers. Um, they were inter- integral parts of uh, the community, especially these people that were arrested by the DOJ because they were looking for people who could be leaders. Now, didn't you say also that some Native Alaskans were arrested? In oh, yeah, that was a peculiar one. Um, a number of people were married. These Japanese guys were married into Native communities, and so some of these, some women had Japanese last names. And so they didn't look very hard. They just said, well, if you have a Japanese last name, we're going to detain you. And so um, uh, a number of uh, Alaska Native people ended up being detained. Um because of their last names, or, or in some cases, there was uh, there are cases, for example, where um, Japanese children, children of Japanese men with Native women, um, were either widowed or excuse me, uh, orphaned or abandoned, and then raised by Native groups had no cultural affiliation with Japan whatsoever, uh, didn't consider themselves to be Japanese, um, but because they had Japanese na- last names, were rounded up and interned um, in primarily in Minidoka and Idaho. But, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a complex and interesting story, um, one that I'm understanding better and better as I go, and uh, uh, there's a lot of work yet to be done, so. Well, thank you very much, Morgan. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us a little bit today, and uh, we're going to do more of these with you. No. Even if it's (laughs) through telephone or Skyping or something like that, because you are a font of knowledge. Well, I'm a font of something, but it's always fun to talk to you, and... uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, my friend. So I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of The History Files. Uh, A couple of little updates. Morgan sent me the information that the chief of the Tlingits uh, in Sitka was named Catlian. And he said that the helmet that he wore, I believe it was a copper helmet that he wore, is still in uh, the museum in Sitka. However, the hammer that he used has been repatriated to his clan. 
I uh, also want to mention that we talked about one of the Pueblos in New Mexico, uh, close to where he was doing some of the archaeological work, was Pecos. I uh, have no idea why neither of us could remember that, but anyway, it's Pecos Pueblo, Pecos Adobe. And we'll have all this stuff in the show notes, too, so anything you're interested in following up on, we'll have we'll have it all listed. Hopefully you'll forgive us our sound quality for this one. Again, we <laughs> recorded it in a car waiting at the airport for yeah. a flight. Yeah, literally recorded this sitting in the cell phone lot at SeaTac. Uh, while we, while Morgan waited for his flight back to Alaska, but I think I think it's worth the weird sound quality for the the interesting topics they covered. We welcome your input. We would love to hear from you. An easy way to do that would be to send us an email at badcatshows at gmail dot com. Uh, send send a recording. Send us an MP3 of something you have to say. If you want to uh, contribute to our show, if you have um, something to add to anything that we've ever talked about, or you want to beg to differ about something, or you just have a comment, love to hear from you. And check out the other shows at Psycon Network. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the PsyCon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at psycon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash THF. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash PsyCon or patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.